from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, Klarna lays off 10% of its workforce via video message. Chase wins 500,000 customers in the UK. And it's your chance to ask us anything. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK, so you can cut costs, fight fraud and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome to episode 632 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Sim Rai, lead customer strategist. How are things in Dubai, Sim? Things in Dubai are really good. It's really hot, but you don't really feel it with the air conditioning. Thank you. I was going to say, it would be would be pretty hot at this time of year. Um, it is. Well, as always, we're joined by some special guests. Making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Philip Kelvin, co-founder and CEO of Tranche. Welcome to the show, Philip. We're going to get into your news a little bit later, but can you give our listeners an introduction to you and Tranche, please? Hello, Ben. Thanks for having me here for my my debut. Um, I'm the co-founder and CEO at Tranche. We help B2B SaaS and other service providers give their customers flexible payment options to close more annual plans and also get paid up front. So by offering a pay with Tranche option, their customers can have payment flexibility, typically up to 12 months uh, and up to £250,000 or dollars. Um, And companies can also come direct. They can get commitment-free credit lines to spread out technology expenses from other suppliers as well. Fantastic. Welcome. And making a very welcome return to the show, we have Sophie Winwood, early stage VC investor at Anthemis. Welcome back to the show, Sophie. As always, never a dull week in fintech and investment. How are you doing? Yeah, good. It honestly is an absolute roller coaster at the moment. Anyone who thinks that fintech is quote unquote boring uh, should read any of our news stories today. They uh, will not be disappointed. <laughs> it's definitely, definitely not boring. Okay, well, let's get into some of that news. So our very first story is a bit of a sad one. So, well, yeah, very sad. Um, So Klarna has laid off 10% of its workforce through a video message. This was recorded quite widely. Uh, We picked this particular one up from the protocol. Um, So the Swedish buy now, pay later company Klarna is laying off 10% of its workforce. CEO Sebastian Simentowski told Starfire a pre-recorded video call last Monday. Klarna had about 6,500 employees, according to CNBC's report. Staff in Europe will be offered redundancy packages with an associated compensation, according to Klarna's boss, while the process for other employees will look different depending on where they work. 
Interest in buy now, pay later products has been affected by you know, a variety of things with consumers feeling financially strapped in many countries and advocates in, in various markets have started investigating the deferred payment plans last year. Klarna has reportedly been looking for more funding, potentially at a lower valuation. So let's start with laying people off by pre-recorded video message. Is that is that ever okay? I mean, I know that it's not really a, there's not a nice way to lay people off necessarily, but is Klarna got quite a bit of flack? Is laying people off by video message? particularly nasty what what do we think um sophie maybe maybe you first yeah i think look how you treat your employees in the bad times um will come back and be very important when things are going well um you contrast this with what airbnb when uh, when they kind of went into covid and they had to let a lot of people go obviously because their business model was was no longer sustainable and they made you know a really big effort of finding those employees jobs elsewhere they were very um the packages were were really good and 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 that's meant that when they bounce back obviously they have a good reputation and people are kind of willing to 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 work for them and and treat them as a great brand so i think it's you know it is poor. And, and we've had examples of this recently that haven't gone well. So to think that they could do that again just seems seems ridiculous, really. But then we are in sort of difficult times. So, um, you know, who knows what the situation was that led to that. What do you think, Sim? Do you, do you agree with Sophie that people will think twice about working for Klarna in the future? What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Like like you said, you know, layoffs, isn't there, there's never a good time for a layoff. I think they're always going to be difficult no matter what, but I think it's how you do it is the question. Now, personally, I'm of the opinion that I don't think, you know, doing it over video call is particularly bad because, you know, of COVID, if you're working from a different country or whatever. I think a pre-recorded message, though, I think it could have been mm. done better than that. It's a bit, you know, it's lacking empathy. It's it's just, yeah, I think that's, that's what's bad. Um like Sophie mentioned, I do think people would think twice because there's always the what if option. You know, what if I work for this company and things go bad in a year or two? It's all about that treatment and how it ends. So spot on. And I think there's even a bias, right? There's a bias that you remember the peak and the end of something. So I think that will hit strongly for people that go through such things. Yeah. The, the pre-recording thing does seem, um, it does seem to be sort of trying to avoid uh, facing up to, to what's happening. And obviously, you know, it's tough if you're a chief executive or any senior executive. Obviously, you know, being the person making people redundant is is not fun. But of course, it's a lot better because you've still got your job, right? It's a lot better than, you know, being one of the people made redundant. So talking about sort of peaks and ends, um, a great point, Sim. Um, Philip, do you think, it, 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 does this mark a peak for buy now, pay later? Is this is this a high watermark? Is this an end of a first phase? Is this irrelevant to the wider buy now, pay later market? Is this Klarna specifically? Um, what, what do you think the wider story is here? I think we're in a very much an unknown what the wider story is. But I, I, I think from a consumer perspective, we need to remember that Klarna has been around for, I think I was looking earlier, 18 years. And the consumer market has, you know, a number of players in, you know, globally really now. And there's been a big push to enter into lots of different markets. I think from a kind of B2B perspective, which I guess we're playing in at Tranche, we feel that we're in a very nascent market. So we're, we're nowhere near that high watermark. We've seen a number of players emerge in different kind of forms. Um, so we're excited. Um, there's a lot happening in the world. And I think what we've, we've learned is that consumers really value 
payment flexibility, but businesses haven't had that opportunity yet. So we're kind of only getting started from from, from that perspective. Um, and you know, I think the uncertain environment that's maybe led to to Klarna's decision actually for us is kind of more of an impetus to help businesses conserve cash, have payment flexibility, where previously they haven't had the option. Um, so we're pretty excited by by where we're at right now in that sense. Sophie, what's what's your sense? I mean, I was thinking, you know, a year ago or maybe a year and a half ago, people were getting a bit overexcited by buy now, pay later, perhaps because everyone was stuck at home and, you know, so or people around the world were stuck at home, so maybe people were shopping online a lot more and so on. Um, are, are people now overcorrecting? Because we've seen, you know, buy now, pay later's in really, you know, really dropping in valuation in Australia, all over the place. Klarna isn't the only one that's, you know, had, had quite a tough time. What do you think is happening? Yeah, so I think what's happening here is that um, valuations have been, you know, probably over what they should have been over the last couple of years, given the amount of capital that was in the market and the general exuberance and kind of the fact that there were limited good deals and, and VCs were fighting to get into it. Um, and and when things are when there is an exuberance market, people to tend to underlook the underlying fundamentals. And then when things come crashing down, things people start looking at that again. And I think what we're seeing is that although Klarna is growing very, very well and their top line GMV is strong and there's still a large you know, proportion of the market to go over and, and merchants sort of value the propositions, um, what we're seeing is that actually the credit underwriting is a very difficult thing to do and it's only going to get more difficult given the macroeconomic climate and that we, they are seeing a lot of bad debt, a lot of non-payments, and that is the kind of going down into their bottom line. And then, of course, there's kind of regulatory um, sort of looking into the business model as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, that there's, there's, there's still a place in this world for buy now, pay later. But I think there is going to be a lot more scrutiny, both from regulators and investors. Is that fun? Do we think that's fundamentally why Klarna is having to lay people off because of the the credit and they've got their sort of got their sums wrong a bit? Um on credit, I suppose there's an interesting question there. Did they get their sums wrong, or have they been taken by surprise by the turn in the market, or maybe a little, a little bit of both of those? I think, look, given that this is not an isolated uh, layoff, we've seen mm. layoffs from Gorillas, from PayPal's, from Bolt, from Getir. Um, what's really happened is that these companies are reacting to the macroeconomic climate, and their investors saying, "Look, you needed to, you need to go into survival mode now." You know, you need to increase your runway. You need to make sure that you're going to get through the next, you know, people are saying three years, even more. And so actually 10% of layoffs isn't massive. It's not sort of, oh, this company is in danger and it's spiraling. It's more, I would think, a sort of, we need to reevaluate. We probably overhired in the good times. And now we're sort of cutting back to make sure that we're focusing on the core. That That's just my read. So Philip, I'd love to come to you on this and get your sense on, does, does this... Is there an evolution here? I mean, you, you were talking earlier about sort of more flexible financing. Does does buy now, pay later become, you know, maybe a footnote or a, a sort of subset of a wider shift towards flexible financing? Because to me, one of the big things about fintech has been, you know, the, the ability to break up lending into a wide variety of different sizes and amounts and tenures that are just much more flexible for customers. And yeah, buy now, pay later has been hugely exciting. But does this mean, do we start to see a sort of growing maturity in the market and really a a better understanding of what customers really need? I I think that's completely correct there. And and what I'm, if I go a bit further than that, I think buy now, pay later, and we've probably done the same here, is is an expression that has been used as part of marketing for 
you know, probably maybe even a hundred firms. Um, you know, it's very simply, it means flexibility, but it's become a, a term that has positives, has negatives, depending on what's happening in the press and in, every, in any given moment. But the reality is that it's both consumer um, and also kind of uh, business, but then there's also lots of sub-segments in there. So um, you've got both sub-segments in terms of what they're financing. So that could be things from e-commerce, to what we're in, which is, might be in a sales-led invoice process, to more traditional things that people have seen around, you know, in, uh, inventory financing, and you know, then you've got revenue-based financing as well. Um, so there, there's there's a number of forms there from what you're financing, and then there's also who the end user is. What does the underwriting look like? And I think what we've seen in uh, the consumer world is people kind of looking at consumers the same in every single country, which probably hasn't necessarily always been the case. Um, and just on the business side, where well, you've got to look at businesses differently. And that really, what it comes down to is the data that you have. Um, what is the data? What is the data that you're using to underwrite? Um, how uh, analogous is it between different industries, different sectors, different countries, uh, and also data availability? And we can, we can talk about that a bit later. Sophie, can I come to you to wrap up this this story on on Klarna? You were talking a little bit earlier about how, how some companies are sort of shifting into defensive mode. Uh, do you think Klarna will change its strategy at all now? What do you think's next for for Klarna? I imagine if they're listening to their investors, um, that their strategy will be sort of to focus on the core and make sure that they're getting that right that they're honing their underwriting models um, and they're making the business more profitable. Now is not the time to be experimenting with new products, entering new geographies or hiring new teams. Um, so I imagine it will be sort of getting getting the ship in order as well as making sure that they're, you know, making cuts so that they can extend their runway and, and ride out the storm. I mean, they just raised a lot of money at a down round, but that, you know, hopefully will give them the capital to, to make sure that they're not going to end up in a, in a tough situation. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to our next story, um, which is that Chase has won 500,000 customers in the UK, bringing in £8 billion in eight months. Uh, This was reported in Altfy and various other places. So JP Morgan has shared a first look at the early results of its multi-million dollar bet on launching a new digital bank in the UK. Chase, as it's called, which launched in September 2021, has reached half a million customers in the UK, according to figures published as part of the American banking giant's 2022 Investor Day. For the 2022 financial year, JP Morgan said Chase lost around $450 million. So that's basically, a, a, um, was that $1,000 per customer, um, due to the cost of getting the UK bank up and running. But it expects to break even in five or six years as it expands into multiple products and full-service banking. Besides reaching half a million customers, the other headline figures included hitting uh, £8 billion or $10 billion in deposits and over 20 million transactions in the eight months since launch. Um, However, alongside the success, Chase is also braced for a billion dollars in losses on this project. Um, Sim, the UK is a crowded market with a lot of digital banks. I mean, it's sort of the, one of the markets where digital banks sort of got started. Did you expect an outsider to come in? Uh, did you expect the Americans to come and show the British how to do it? Um, did, is this surpri- did this surprise you? Or were you expecting Chase to be, to be successful in terms of winning customers like this? I think, to be honest, I was expecting... I don't know if I was expecting Chase to come to the UK. 
that's something else. But <laughs> <laughs> whether Chase was successful or not, yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's their offering, right? I mean, it's half the brand, half the offering. It's their association with JP Morgan, right? Chase does exist um, in retail in the US, but it's something new here. So I think that's definitely something, there's an affinity there, I think. But more importantly, um, I think it's the offering, you know, they offer really good cashback. So, you you know, the debit card pays 1% cashback on all spending. Um, they have a new instant access savings account with 1.5% interest, which I think is one of the best saving rates on the market. So I think it's a bit of both. So I'm not surprised about their success, you know, and given the, mar- the marketing and promotional activity from Chase has been massive. So I don't think it's surprising at all. There's definitely been, definitely been a lot of advertising. Um, Sophie, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to hear, hear your view. I mean, you know, should we, should we focus on the wins or the losses? Um, you know, if this was, if this was a VC funded thing, would you be pleased by these results or a bit, a bit appalled? It's, it's difficult to say, right? Because we fund unprofitable businesses. So the whole thing about VC is that, you know, <laughs> otherwise these businesses wouldn't exist without, uh, or they would, it would, they would just course, take a little bit slower. Course. I think, uh, you know, it, it's hard sometimes, isn't it? Because we, we spend the whole time bank bashing and saying they don't invest enough in technology and digital innovation, new products. And when they do, we say, you know, it's cost them too much. And like, you know, what are they doing? Um, so, I, you know, not many of our sort of VC backed digital banks are profitable still uh, after being around and being funded and with, you know, millions and millions of pounds of, of capital. So I'm, I'm not at all surprised that it's lost money and uh, I'm sure anyone who's in the business isn't as well. Um, but the, the real question is, is sort of, you know, why, why are they doing this in, they haven't launched in another geography for 222 years. So, you know, is it is the, what's appealing about the UK market. And I think I can see some sort of things which are, we are a very receptive uh, customer segment for new fintech solutions. Um, you know, we, we like to travel abroad and that kind of, um, their offering is, is supportive of that. But they've been buying customers, you know, with with kind of offering free money and um, rates. So, you know, I, I'd love to see their business plan and how that does, this does make, make a profitable business. Yeah, they certainly... They've certainly spent a lot of money per customer. And obviously, setting up a bank is going to cost you a lot of money, right? And it's a scale game um, at some rate. But yeah, I, I wonder, Phil, if I'd be interested in your view as well, do you think they might have misunderstood the British customer? Because, you know, British people have kind of had a bit of a track record all the way going back all the way to sort of egg or, you know, back into the sort of two, early 2000s of jumping on to new exciting digital banks with good interest rates, putting their money there. And then moving on, you know, there's a lot of sort of serial switchers in the British population. Do you think that's maybe what Chase has done? They've just won the switchers and they'll they'll be off? Well, the UK, you're right that the UK has a bit of a switching culture. And I, I, I don't know whether that's because people are excited or kind of to say, well, actually, it's quite easy to set up a new account. Uh, I actually set up a Chase, when the Chase first came out, I think I managed to set it up. Uh, so easily, I set it up between two stops on the uh, the underground in Berlin, um, with some Wi-Fi. It was that easy. Um, wow. However, you know, I think switching is not really encouraged by like just the people testing things out like me. I, the government's been been pushing it. They have the current account switching service. Um, and it was a big thing after the financial crisis to move banking away from just solely the, the big 
the big five. So I don't think it's necessarily entirely kind of the UK consumer as a switcher. Actually, the government have been encouraging it. The question I think that we've seen with other neobanks is whether people switch their main banking, i.e. use the switching service, or they just add another neobank to their wallet for their for either their holiday, I think as Sophie was saying, um, or for the savings rates. What do you think, Sim? Do you think do you think Chase has got a chance of 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 winning sort of people's main current accounts, their main bank accounts? Or do you do you think Philip's right that it's probably just lots of lots more secondary accounts for, for people who are sort of cash rich depositing some money there? I think so. But I think we also have to kind of think about the definition of a primary account or a main account. You know, I don't think it's no, like any longer a bank that has the salary deposited into, as we once thought. I think mm. it's perfectly reasonable to assume that customers have multiple bank accounts for different purposes in their lifestyles. And therefore, an account that has your salary paid into may simply serve as a transactional account and not one that you use most for your daily purchases. So I think both digital banks and um, incumbents need to recognize the place that they stand in, in the lifestyles of their customers to resolve any pain points and gaps there and kind of redefine what a main bank is. I want to come back to a point you made, Sophia, about JP Morgan's sort of relative success here, right? It, you know, as you're saying, we sort of, you know, we, 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 we criticize big banks for not doing enough and then we criticize them for, for, for doing things. Um, is this actually one of the more successful launches we've seen from a big established bank. I mean, it, you know, it's not easy launching a digital bank. There's so many digital banks. It's easy to think it's easy to launch one. It isn't. Is this one of the is this one of the better ones we've seen? One of the more successful launches we've seen from an established bank? It feels like it is, right? Um, I think you know we've we've seen sort of some of the the earlier efforts fail. JP Morgan's first effort, Fin closed after a year, um, yeah. and kind of NatWest's bow didn't do super well. Um, is it too soon to tell? Uh, is 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 you know is the question that's on my mind? But yeah, I, you know, I've got to say, congrats to them on you know. I think they have a very strong brand, um, very strong brand in the US. A lot of people that have lived or even sort of uh, visited the US will know the Chase card because someone will have had it in their friends group or work group. And so I think having a strong brand that is associated with being pretty um, consumer friendly and I would say forward thinking has probably helped them here. Feels very similar to Demarcus to me and that you know it's an American investment bank because uh, you know JP Morgan is primarily an investment bank even if Chase Manhattan isn't wasn't um, feels it feels quite similar to, to Marcus I guess it's you know probably give competing for pretty much the same customers. So I suppose the question is really having paid for or bought as you put it Sophie all of these customers can they keep them? Um, and as you say, maybe that's time will tell. Um, okay. Um, any other, any final thoughts on this this story? Um, do, do any of you three have a Chase account? Maybe that's, too, am I prying too much into your personal uh, things? I saw uh, one hand went up. For, so, for those of you who are listening, two hands went up. Okay. So we, we won't disclose who has the account, but uh, <laughs> two of the four of us do. So, wow. 50% of fintech fans or, or fintech podcast uh Participants have one. <laughs> Actually, it'd be interesting to know what proportion of that, that are familiar. I, I dare say there's a good few thousand industry uh, types in there, aren't there? Okie dokie. Uh, we will take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors, and we will be back very shortly. 
Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as $10, just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com forward slash insider. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. So this is that London-based BNPL startup tranche, or perhaps I should say flexible finance startup tranche, has won three and a half million to bring payment flexibility to businesses. This was reported in Tech EU and various other places. So London-based uh, financing platform for businesses tranche is coming out of stealth mode after raising three and a half million uh, pounds in pre-seed equity and debt funding. The investment was led by Flash Ventures and Global Founders Capital, as well as a debt facility from Columbia Lake Partners. With plans to roll out in the United States later this year, the platform also received backing from Y Combinator and will join Y Combinator's summer 2022 cohort this year. According to Tranche, companies waste $20 billion a year globally, paying for premium monthly fees for annual software-as-a-service contracts that they could pay for upfront and in full if it wasn't for cash flow constraints. Founded in 2021 by Philip Kelvin and Bo Allison, the startup aims to eliminate this wastage. The solution embeds in the sales journey of uh, SaaS sellers and other service providers from legal firms to recruitment. By offering a pay-with-tranche payment method, these suppliers can offer their end customers a more flexible way to pay for contracts, while they themselves get paid upfront faster. So we have one of the founders with us here today. Thank you, Philip, for joining us. Um, makes sense to come to you first. So congratulations on the funding. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. What um, Can you tell us a bit more about what you're offering and, and the sort of gap in the market uh, that, that you spotted? You know, which kind of business are you going for? Um, what's the problem? Why are they wasting so much money? Yeah, absolutely. So we offer payment flexibility to businesses. As you, I mean, you described it very well. Buying items such as software, it could be cloud, uh, or it could be other services as well. Really, we kind of look for sales-led processes. So what that means is, uh, or what it's not, is things like e-commerce marketplaces where it's you know, a £100 transaction that a business happens to be buying rather than a consumer. Um, we're not into that. We're into what we like, like to say, kind of larger items over longer periods of time um, and filling this kind of working capital gap, but also enabling people to serve cash. 
And I think the gap in the market, my time, I was in finance before this um, at a kind of scale-up company. I was a CFO there, and I just realized how how much time I spent negotiating over payment options. Um, businesses obviously want to get paid up front. I didn't want to pay up front because I wanted to spend that on marketing, on hiring people, on things that really affected the bottom line rather than just my kind of operating expenses, especially when you don't know what the kind of return on investment for your infrastructure software platform that your engineers tell you that you need to buy. So that's where the idea came from. We did a lot of research in the the London CFO space on this. Um, and then we set up the company last September um, and we've been been working at it ever since. Where does your where does your funding come from? So not sorry, not the funding for, for to grow your business, but the funding that you're mm. then lending onto these small businesses to sort of enable them to to finance. So you laying some of that off to partners? Where, where are you getting the, the, the funding from that you're offering? So we're, we have a, uh, credit lines in place with, with partners. You mentioned one of them, one of them earlier. Um, and, but what's really important here is that we're actually taking on the credit risk ourselves. So all the underwriting, which is really the difficult bit here. Um, you know, ultimately the goal of any business in the financing space, I like to say, is how do you engage someone? How do you engage someone in an experience in the platform? How do you distribute capital? And we take those bits so that SaaS companies don't have to. They don't have to do the lending. They don't have to do the underwriting. They don't have to do the collections, the fraud prevention. And those are the bits that we take off their hands, but it still enable them to sell their product and offer payment flexibility as, you know, what I like to think is the the buying experience. It's It should be part of the buying experience, not just being sent an invoice to pay. Got it. But the credit risk is a big is a big part of the value that you're adding is is understanding and managing and monitoring credit risk. Okay, it's quite ambitious to come out of stealth mode and go straight into launching in the United States. Quite a big market. Um, <laughs> was that always the aim? You know, where, where where are you going to start in in the US? So I think we've always had an intention to serve the US market. Um, we, we've been in the UK market for, for a couple of months now and uh, partnering with people here. I think primarily one of the main reasons we want to go to the US is that actually a lot of the software as a service companies that we speak to, they may be in the UK or in Europe and have general managers here, et cetera. But a lot of the decisions are made over in the US um, because that's where a lot of the companies have traditionally come out of. Um, I think, as you mentioned, we're entering into to Y Combinator. We're only one of a handful of London companies that, that do that every year. And so that's really accelerated our thinking. Um, we're actually already testing the market at the moment. Um, it'll, be a gradual, it'll be a gradual approach. But Y Combinator, in our view, enables us to both access their previous companies that have been on that, that program, um, but also as a way to kind of give credibility to our go-to-market um, um, out in the US beyond the UK. Got it. So just as sort of the consumer buy now, pay later companies have partnered with e-commerce platforms and merchants, you're looking to partner with SaaS, big SaaS providers and so on. And I think the important thing is the data that I mentioned earlier, in the sense that uh, one of the key drivers of how we're able to do this is that we're not just relying on credit information, we use open banking information. And the open banking connectors that we use in the UK, um, a lot of those providers both provide in the UK and the US. So the commonality of data has to be a key thread when looking at geographies, as well as regulatory regimes and other things that you covered for the consumer part. Sophia, I'd love to bring you in on this and and, and get your your sense on the market. I've been trying to avoid calling this buy now pay later because i don't think it really is i think that's maybe an unhelpful term but how, how do you see this and this sort of this b2b opportunity that tranche is going after um do you, do you think that's a really interesting opportunity um yeah absolutely i think 
uh, Klarna made buy now, pay later the phrase of the day uh, when actually it's it's invoice factoring, which has been it was a product which has been around for, you know, thousands of years, hundreds of years. Um, and it's a beautiful business model. Like it spits off cash. It's it's really smart. Um, it it like helps um, the businesses that they're treating to to kind of focus their their working capital on on growing rather than sort of um, you know upfront payments. And you know I, I've got to say, Philip, congratulations to get sort of the debt facility, to get the investors, to get the underwriting. Like that is it's not it's not easy. Uh, and so to have that kind of powered by software is really kind of bringing, um, you know, democratizing that type of financial product to to customers that wouldn't really have access to it. Um, we're invested in a company called Hakodo, which is is buy now, pay later for B2B marketplaces. Um, so kind of an, a, another kind of huge customer segment that was um, previously underserved. So yeah, I think it's it's an interesting one. Um, just kind of need to keep on the the credit underwriting and make sure you're, you're taking on the right customers. That's some, that's some good advice there. <laughs> I'm sure that's not news to you, but yes, indeed. <laughs> um, Sim, we, we, we keep coming across all these you know, fantastic businesses that are, that are you know, really trying to serve small businesses better. But why, why still now? Why are small businesses still kind of being underserved? I mean, why, you know, to some extent, why is Philip able to do this and launch a successful company now? You know, why wasn't this done you know, five, five years ago? What, what do you think? Why is it taking so long to fill some of these gaps in you know, in smaller business um, financing? I think generally financial products targeting small business owners, they're rarely decide, like designed with small business owners in mind. I think there's quite little thought given to how they should be tailored for that group. You know, most small business um, products are either expensive versions of consumer products or light versions of corporate products. And what's less commonly discussed is how SMBs like what they actually want and what are the broader problems that they face in running their businesses. I think rather than a set of, you know, quite siloed products, these firms want something that, you know, help them run their business. And I think that's what Tranche is doing. You know, these owners need to make millions of decisions every day. That's what they need help with. Um, but they don't have like, you know, complete data sets to go on from. So it's a bit shocking, I think, because, you know, in the UK, at least, 99.9% of the private sector businesses are small business owners and they employ like 60% of private sector workers, but they're chronically underserved. So I think that will be changing soon. Philip, I'd love to come back to that point you made about um, open banking and sort of implicitly to, to Sophie's point about, you know, sort of credit rating and so on. How helpful is open banking data? Um, is that a key part of what you're doing? Is it a nice to have? Is, is open banking a big enabler for, 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 for you? It is. Um, the ability to see live banking feeds across kind of multiple bank accounts is key to understanding the business and also to be able to make decisions, you know, once the first advance is out there as well. Um, the, technolo the technology can still be a bit nascent, um, especially with neobanks and the kind of quality of connectors. Um, but we've learned a lot from that kind of in the build phase. Um, I, I just think the main thing to come back to is the live nature of it, that we maintain an open banking connection with someone through their journey with us. And, you know, historically, you'd go into company's house and you could see accounts that were nine months out of date. They might be micro accounts, so you wouldn't really learn anything anyway. Um, or you rely on business credit reference agency reports, which whilst useful to kind of highlight red flags, you know, is someone bankrupt? Is there something really bad in there? They're, they're nowhere near as detailed as what a consumer credit report is. Um, they're a way off that. So really, Open Banker is, is, is the big enabler for us. 
For listeners outside the UK, Companies House is a place where British companies have to file their accounts every year, but they don't file very much detail and it's not terribly useful or interesting. Um, that's the problem of, of assessing credit risk of, of smaller businesses. Um, so super interesting point then about open banking data. Is this, this is really more embedded finance, isn't it? I mean, buy now, pay is not actually a helpful term at all. This is basically, this is basically an potentially an embedded finance story. I mean, how much is Tranche going to be a visible brand to the companies that, that, are, that, that are borrowing through you, Philip? And how much is it going to be just sort of embedded into some of the, the, the partnerships that you're building? I think it's going to be both. Um, and I think it's going to depend on the use case. So even with our partners, we you know we want to be able to offer this pay with tranche option, um, and so their customers will see that they will receive communication from us because it isn't a simple a uh, hundred pounds for thirty days. There's there there is more complexity to it. But we built a kind of a digital first product that, to Sim's point earlier acknowledges that business owners, whether they're a small business or a medium business, however you want to define them, ultimately they are consumers themselves and they have expectations. And we've taken our experience of that consumer world to bring that here. So we are embedded, but also people can come to us directly. Um, and the, what we've taken a bit, and a bit like what Klarna and other people have done slightly later in their journeys, is realize that you should encourage people to come to you directly, even if you don't have the merchant signed up. And so we act as a bit of a marketplace. People can come to us, we can recommend them partners, they can put partners on our platform, or they can find a pay with tranche option with their with their supplier if we're partnered with them as well. So there's a bit of a, a two-sided proposition for us, which means that we're embedded, but we're also direct. And we built it in that way, you know, on purpose. Fantastic. Well, congratulations again. And I think we all look forward to to, to watching your success. So best of luck. And thank you. All right, let's move on to our fourth story. Um, and this is that a fintech founder has alleged that another fintech startup is copying and pasting its business. This was reported in TechCrunch. So Andy Bromberg, who is CEO of the A16Z, maybe should I say A16Z? Anyway, uh, <laughs> Andy Bromberg, CEO of Eco, is claiming that Pebble, another fintech startup, has plagiarized Eco's materials and business model. Bromberg posted a Twitter thread saying that Pebble engaged in copying and pasting, immaturity, lying, and espionage. In the thread, Bromberg detailed the background behind his claims, and he claims that the Pebble co-founders, CEO Aaron Bai and CTO Sahil Fadness, impersonated Y Combinator investors to get access to Eco's waitlist. He also alleges that Fadness asked detailed questions about Eco's backend under the guise of looking for employment, and that multiple aspects of Pebble's product and marketing language are essentially copied and pasted from Eco. Pebble recently raised $6.2 million in seed funding. Pebble said that they view Eco as a competitor similar to how Uber and Lyft compete for business. Wow, um, we're getting a lot of these uh, sort of fintech founder spats. Um, this isn't new, is it? I mean, it's not new in the business of internet. I mean, we've had for years there have been internet startups that have copied other businesses and firms that have been very, very similar to others. And I'm, by the way, I'm not suggesting that that is necessarily the case here. Um, actually, do we think there's any truth to these um, accusations? Um, maybe not something people are <laughs> going to jump in on. Um, uh, 
but okay, let's uh, wide, let's broaden it out a bit. Do we think this happens in general, that there are businesses that look at other businesses and say, not only, gosh, that's a really interesting model, we could make that work, but say, gosh, that's a really interesting model, and we could copy aspects of their website, their language, their marketing, their technology, and everything else. Because it's one thing to say, that's an interesting business model, we can learn from that. It's quite another to say, let's try and copy that. Um, Sophie, have you had that in your portfolio? Have you had businesses in your portfolio feeling that there's a competitor that's more than just competing? I like can't tell you how often that happens. <laughs> but I, I actually think you should you should take that as flattery. Like if someone's copying your copy in your business, like that's because you're doing really well. <laughs> you're like, you're doing a good thing. You're into it. We always say when, when we're talking to companies and they haven't assessed, you know, that they say they have the competitive landscape, then there's no competitors. Like <laughs> maybe you're not building the right thing because <laughs> if it's a good idea, like someone else will be looking at it and you should not, competition should not be viewed as a bad thing. It should be viewed as a positive thing because it, it, one, it means that you're onto something and two, just means you have to be the best. Like, and if you're doing well and you're in the limelight and you, you know, you shouldn't be worried because if your product's better, your team's better, um, then you should you should be able to win. So, I, I you know, the devious stuff is kind of fun and interesting, um, and I'm sure there's a lot of that stuff going on. But um, but yeah, I, I honestly think competition is a good thing. Sim, when does when does competitor research move into sort of corporate espionage? When when do you cross the line from a legitimate question? to you know false pretenses i think like sophie mentioned i think it's you know completely normal and fine to do recon on a business right we all do it people have done it it's normal but i think the line is crossed when perhaps you're doing recon from a perspective of deception when you're saying something that necessarily might not be true to get that information, to get that insight, I think that's when the line is crossed. I think if you're pretty open to some degree about what you're trying to discover or uncover, I think it's fine. That's just normal. That's the way of life, right? I mean, technology and innovation keep moving on. But I think if you're perhaps explicitly knowing that you're deceiving someone and lying, I think that's where the line is crossed. Is, 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 do we think there's more of this going on? Um, is this is there more of it? Are we just are we just seeing a bit more of the dirty laundry being uh, washed washed in public? I, I don't know, Philip. If you've got a perspective on this, I don't know if you, you've seen this happening. Is it is it happening more? Do we just feel it's happening more? Is it just a coincidence of a few stories coming together in a few weeks, uh, or has this always gone on? I think I agree with with Sim that you know it's. <laughs> Well, actually, both Sim and Sophie. I mean, I think this happens in general that you know people see a space that they can go after, um, and I think saying that someone's got. I think we've seen it quite a lot in different geographies. Someone say, "Oh, I want to build the X for Europe, um, etc." And that might be a US company, and they say, "Actually, we can build that now." And I think we've seen that in emerging markets, especially. Um, and I think a lot of investors have been excited by saying, "Oh, let's build this in the kind of Asia environment. This could be really good in Singapore." Um, so I, I think we see a lot of that, and that's more in kind of business model or kind of market identified. I think, you know, it all comes about trying to have integrity in in in, in what you do. Um, but why Combinator openly say that they fund companies within each batch that may be doing similar things or have some crossover? And I think what that comes down to, and I think Sophie alluded to that, is the key in a lot of this is is execution. 
Um, and that's the pressure, you know, my shoulders, my team's shoulders, um, just for any early stage startup is how do you be the best? How do you execute um, on your idea or on your plan, on your um, on your vision? Um, and that's that's a really difficult bit. The idea, ideas are, you know, ideas, that's, that's a difficult thing to argue about, but execution is what it really is what it really matters about. Yeah, I, I did. I did like um, Sophie's point about you know competition kind of should make you stronger because it should sort of push you to to do better. I suppose it's the difference between somebody having a very similar idea and a very similar business and and feeling that somebody's actually sort of stealing your intellectual property, copying your assets. And again, I'm not saying that that's happened in this case, but you know if if you if you sense that somebody's sort of literally copying and pasting your website or your your marketing language, that's when it feels like it's it's absolutely crossing the line. Um, an unfair competition. One of the interesting points here was that um, um, Bromberg told TechCrunch that Eco had no plans for pursuing legal action. And I suppose from from watching too much TV, I always think that Americans sort of jump into court very quickly. Um, does that maybe imply that actually maybe there's just not not enough here for this to be really serious? It's it's you know sailing close to the wind perhaps, but not enough. Um, would it? Would a business take another business to court if there was something really genuine, or could that actually just be too damaging because it would just distract the founders too much? Because actually, the last thing you need to do is spend time in court suing a competitor. You need to just get on with building your own business. Time and money, right? I think if I was yeah. their investors, I'd I'd be saying maybe not so. Let's not go down that route. Um, yeah. Also, it's great publicity for them. They're in TechCrunch. Tech you know, <laughs> like maybe that's all they wanted. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So maybe they're not actually that bothered about this at all. It just gets people talking about them. Um, so are we just are we just falling for a very cynical ploy that you know the, the latest trick is you you have a public spat on Twitter um, with some similar company because actually the rising tide lifts all boats and suddenly people are paying attention to both of you. <laughs> okay, I think we should end this story at this point then. Uh, <laughs> all right, thank you. Okay, well, in that case, let us move on to a uh, a couple of stories that we didn't have uh, time to cover. So, um, Sim, uh, would you take it away, please? Yes, of course. So this one is from Forbes, that new banks are plentiful, but rarely profitable. So the number of new banks has grown tremendously in the last two years, but only a few of them are profitable. And this is according to a new report from Simon Kutcher, which looked into detail at the profitability of new banks around the world. And what they found was new banks hold 1 billion accounts around the world, including 100 million in the US. And in Brazil alone, half the population has an account with a new bank, but they struggle to turn a profit. And they estimated that less than 5% of them are even breaking even. And so um, in a survey of 25 of the biggest new banks, it revealed that only two of them reach profitability. You know, most earn less than $30 in revenue per customer annually. So I think what's key here to profitability, like I mentioned earlier, is it's always key to start identifying pain points and identifying those customers that will pay for a solution. And then hopefully where customers are actually able to pay for a solution. So I think, you know, new banks focusing on smaller segments, it's so critical for them to identify pain points within that niche with a high willingness to pay as well. Not a, a copycat product, I think, with a lack of skill. I don't think that's going to work anymore. Thank you. 
And another story we didn't have time to cover is that Kaixia Bank has issued a Braille card for the visually impaired, which was reported in Finextra and various other places. So Kaixia Bank, uh, which is uh, pretty much Spain's largest bank by number of customers, has launched a Visa card with Braille reading and writing code embedded for visually impaired customers. The new card, developed in partnership with Once and Visa, will soon be available for all types of card issued by the bank, so credit, debit, and prepaid cards. The main difference with other Visa cards issued by the bank is that the identification number is in Braille. The cards also use notches to help customers position them correctly in point-of-sale terminals and ATMs. Kaixia Bank also has ATMs for the visually impaired, with a menu designed to facilitate the use of a Braille keyboard and voice-guided navigation. Um, so I think this story is fantastic. Uh, you know, we always think about fintech as um, sort of you know, helping sort of mainstream customers and so on. But, you know, there's huge numbers of people who are financially excluded for one reason or another. This is a different reason to to reason many other people are excluded. But um, I think it's great. I'm a big admirer of Kaixia Bank. Uh, for have been for many of year, many years. It's a very, very innovative um, bank. Very, very uh, pleased to see them doing this. And I hope this becomes widespread and makes a difference to lots of people because to me, fintech, the whole purpose of fintech is making people's lives better. So fantastic. All right. And finally, so let's bring everybody back for the final section of the week. And this week, we're trying something a little bit new, um, a little bit different, and diving into our FinTech Insider mailbag. So we have been asking our social media followers, that's you listeners, um, to send in any quickfire questions um, to the panel uh, to at FinTech Insiders. And we're aiming to answer them in one show per month. So our first question is... What's the most interesting fintech market in the world right now? And Philip, you're not allowed to say it's flexible financing for small businesses. Uh, um, Sophie, should we start with you? Oh, I read this as geographical market, but... Yes, no, well, it, it could be. It's, 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 I did too, but it's not written that way. What, what's the most interesting fintech market in the world right now? I think it's in the world that makes you think geography, but it could be sector could be something else um okay in terms of sector i think and i'm gonna play into Phil, philip's hands here um we're seeing a lot of the <laughs> the intersection of of, of e-commerce and fintech um you know the the rise of shopping online um over covid paired with the increase in kind of digitally first smes is is creating a really interesting environment for kind of embedded fintech solutions within e-commerce um solutions specifically in sme philip what do you think well, I was a bit stumped when I couldn't go for my default answer here. But um, I'm, I'm going to be quite boring here. People might say this is FinTech 2.0, but I, having used open banking now for, for a fair amount of time and see it evolve, like it's got so much further to go. It's you know the difference between countries, regions, America, Europe. There's so much potential, both for consumers and businesses. And that's everything from accessing data, open finance, but also what we're seeing more now with the payments, payments via open banking and kind of going through different payment rails with uh, variable recurring payments. I think we're just at the beginning and it's also a viable market. Like it, it is going to happen. So I'm, I'm pretty excited what five years time looks like in that space. Sim. 
I'm going to go differently here. I'm going to go geographically because that's how I thought of it. So I think the other day I read um, Thailand. So I don't know if it's the most interesting, but I think it's definitely interesting because, you know, Thailand's home to a fast growing fintech sector. I read that they have, you know, 268 fintech companies. And in the first nine months of last year, they raised um, $250 million, something like that. So I think that's something interesting to keep an eye on. And I, I also took the, 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 the question in, in, a, in a similar way. I, I've been fascinated by the, the, the growth of fintech in Africa. And I realize it's not a market, it's like a whole continent. Um, but, you know, the sheer diversity, the creativity, the rapid growth, and, you know, the ability to really solve some, you know, big problems for people and the whole, you know, skipping of generations of, of technology. Um, I think Af- the African markets are f- fantastic to watch. Um, not sure if InsureTech counts as fintech, but I'm also loving watching some of what's going on in InsureTech. But maybe that's a cheating answer because oh, it totally part. does. InsureTech is, you know, InsureTech fintech. I think so. Great. I think so. I that's think an anthemous answer there, Sophie. <laughs> yeah. <it is>. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm a fintech nerd. I'm like fintech insider usually, so I'm like go for it, InsureTech. <laughs> All right. Our second question uh, from uh, from one of our listeners is, um, in the last few years, we've seen little innovation from UK digital banks. Is it time for crypto to take mainstream adoption to drive innovation again? Uh, Sim? Um, to be honest, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this one. Um, I think, okay, little innovation from UK neobanks, but I think, I'm not sure if crypto is the right alternative to, to drive that innovation um, in that sense. So I, I would say no. I think digital banks are still doing interesting things. And, you know, we talked about buy now, pay later too, and separate other fintech markets. I don't know if crypto will replace that. Philip? I'm going to say no. I think I think with the regulatory attention that are on, just even getting a banking license for a lot of the neobanks, it's so difficult. I don't see them going into things like you know even the, you know the oldest currency like you know, Bitcoin, for example. It's it's worth half than what it was worth last November, and I don't think the FCA and the PRA would would look particularly happy about further forays of the neobanks into this. So I think there'll just be some nervousness. Sophie. Was this question submitted like a couple of weeks ago? Because I feel like <laughs> <laughs> crypto's just not had a good couple of weeks, and 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 the hardest hit have been retail traders. So uh, at at the moment, I would sit back and say no. <laughs> like, and and I, and I think while we've seen little innovation, we've seen innovation that's been interesting and been then been adopted by wider sort of traditional banks. Um, even if it's not been wow innovation, it's been stuff that's been, you know has changed the way we interact with our financial services systems is crypto that next layer you know yeah i would probably say not at the moment i also think yeah i i'm, I'm also sort of leaning, I, I, I know because while i again i agree with the, the sort of it's, it's the digital banks in the uk and other markets have been have not been so innovative it's partly because they've solved some of the bigger outstanding problems and i think i always try to come back to the problems okay what are the big problems facing the world um what are some of the big challenges um you know things like the climate crisis and and so on and and is crypto part of the solution to that maybe uh is crypto part of the solution to the cost of living crisis not obviously. Um, so I think there's a lot that crypto can do, um, but I don't know that crypto is the only source of innovation and the only source of problem solving. So I, I sort of don't agree with the, the t- where the, the question appears to be coming from. Okay, and finally, um, fintech insider hosts play monopoly 
I don't know if the hosts means it's just me and Sim or if it's all four of us. Um, who's the banker? Who's winning? Who's cheating? Um, <laughs> um, I'm tempted to say I think David Breer is winning because he's a wonderfully competitive man uh, <laughs> um, who hates losing. Um, but uh, I'm certainly not going to try and answer the who's cheating question because that's just going to get me into trouble. Um, anyone else got a view? I mean, can we flip this question to like, what's our favourite piece in Monopoly? Yeah, go on. I think, yeah. I think that's a what's much What's your favourite piece in Monopoly then? Yeah, that's a good question. Mine is the hat, the top hat. I just think it's so classic and chic and you can just, you know, swivel it around the board. It's quite easily, it doesn't pierce your fingers, it doesn't hurt. I think it's just quite nice to look at. What about you guys? Oh, you took my, I was going to say the hat because I'm like a venture capitalist and it's like a capitalist hat. Um, but maybe I'll go with uh, a canon because, oh God, I'm going to say something that's not you're thinking of You're thinking of a different game. You're thinking of Risk or something like that. There isn't a canon on the, on the classic Monopoly not? board. No, there's no. a dog. Oh, um, there's a dog. There's a car. I think there's a ship um, or a boat. And okay, there's two I'm, others. I'm there's an old boot. <laughs> there's an old boot. No, I'm not the old boot. <laughs> I didn't say you were. <laughs> Do you know? I would have. You, I would imagine that the venture capitalists all loved Monopoly as children. But perhaps you're 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 bursting my prejudice. I did, but then you know, where did this cannon come from? Email me um, if you had a cannon. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there, maybe there's a cannon in, in, a, in a different country. Philip, um, do you have a favourite Monopoly piece? And then uh, I know this is going to be a question that's going to haunt me through social media, my, the company. Just everyone's going to remind me of this, so I'm just going to go for it. Play safe. Um, I'm going to go for ship. Um, the ship was a good one. Sometimes a car, but um, I think we've all got to steer the ship um, at the moment. So um, maybe that's maybe that's my role. Thank you, so I got, got a little bit of a silent applause there. But you see why I said this is going to this is going to haunt me. My answer: This is, is going to haunt you. It is going to haunt you. The producers have reminded me that there's also an iron. Um, so clearly, I have strike while it's hot. For our, oh, <laughs> I think it's definitely time to end this recording. Right. Uh, <laughs> Um, apparently, the canon was an original piece. So, Sophie, you must be much older than you look. Oh, um, <laughs> my granny, my granny set. That'll be why. <laughs> All right, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's um, fantastic guests. Uh, where can people find out a bit more about you? Firstly, Sophie. Yeah. So, if you want to find a bit more about um, Anthemus, uh, you can go on anthemus.com, or I am at, on Twitter at at Sophie Winwood. And Philip? Um, come on to tranche.com. Um, tranche with no E, um, importantly on the podcast. Um, tranche.com and also feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn uh, or Twitter. And Sim? Well, you can find me in Dubai. So if you're in Dubai, say hi. Um, but no, you can find me on LinkedIn and at sim.rai at levelfs.com. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn or on elevenfs.com as well. And thank all of you for listening and for the fun questions that we uh, made a mess of. Um, so please join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you all very much and goodbye. <laughs>